Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Barry Stevens, a documentary filmmaker whose feature work includes Offspring, Prosecutor, and Undercover Jihadi. He also made the television series War Story for the History Channel. He's currently working on another feature, Toy Stories, about labor abuse in the production of children's toys around the world. Barry picked 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's revolutionary, revelatory look at where we've been and where we might be going, an unprecedented, beautifully executed vision that remains unmatched half a century later, stretching from the dawn of man to the next stage in our evolution, which may or may not be tied to the appearances of a mysterious monolith. It's an auteurist masterpiece that's impossible to discuss without veering into metaphor and symbolism, which means we'll probably never stop discussing it. Its influence is everywhere, including the artwork for this show. And on the occasion of its 50th anniversary, and this Friday's arrival of an IMAX 70mm version for the first time ever, it felt like time to make our own voyage through it. This is someone else's movie. When I speak to, I've been speaking to a couple of people about it in anticipation of talking to you. Oh, nice. And uh, young people, younger people. And they think, well, it was boring. And that that is, um, and you know, there are aspects of it, certainly. I mean, my God, it's dated. In a way, the datedness is uh, interesting in that it's a window into another time of the way the world was seen, mm-hmm. which is cool. And then sometimes perhaps it's just dated. But Kubrick w- was obsessed with detail. And you feel it. You feel it in the film. You feel it in everything that, that's in that film that's always, that's always so well-researched and so, and so meticulous. It may be... There may be wrong choices, the view may be wrong, whatever. But that remains when I, I saw it again the other night. Yeah. I love the idea of futurism as history. Like the thing that you were saying, right. like in a way the film feels dated. And, and it is because it's the work of someone in 1968 trying to predict what 2001 would look like. Yeah. And you get that sense of kind of the space age optimism that even though, yes, computers are turning on us, we have computers and we have telephone screens and we have uh, Pan Am is flying to the moon on a regular basis and and even though this is clearly a charter flight because Haywood Floyd's the only one on it there's all these wonderful little ideas of if things progress along a certain point this is where we'll end up and every single science fiction movie set in the near or not too distant or general future is always going out on a limb with these things and what 2001 did was present it present its future design with such authority Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the pacing comes in, because you have time to look at all these pieces and how they work and, and appreciate mm-hmm. what we have created, which mm-hmm. is all, you know, coming back to the bone in the in the sky. Um, it's all human innovation based on whatever spark we, we witnessed as an audience. I'm going to jump yeah. all over, clearly. Uh, but the sense that Kubrick had was was that we were going to be, like, we're working together, everything's going to be okay. You know, it wasn't until... Um, Later, that I when I first saw it, I was I was a kid. I was five, probably mm. in 1973. It was definitely a re-release. Uh, I saw mm. it probably in 70 millimeter. Definitely at the Eglinton. oh, so you were born in 68. 68, yeah. Oh, yeah. so so Just it's a few the, months it, later. yeah. You were born the same year as the movie. Yeah, that's um, funny. I'm a star child. 
Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a weird thing to be tied to because it was released in April. I was born in August, and uh, you know, you just have that little ping in the back of your brain every time you see your birth year on anything. Yes, and so two thousand and one has always been associated with with me, and it's always just really easy to figure out how far back or how far ahead mm. we are. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's e- the the amount of time between the end of the First World War and the release of 2001 A Space Odyssey is equal to the amount of time since, which is somehow I I cannot grasp that. It's inconceivable, isn't it? It's... But that that um the the business about the technology and the way we imagine the future is interesting when I, I when when I see it, I imagine young people seeing it will see those screens on the back of the Pan Am shuttle going to the space wheel. Mm-hmm. And see these little flat screens on the back of the seats, which of course are part of our life every day. And that was completely unknown. That was not maybe people talked about it, but nobody had ever. I don't think it ever realized that it ever put that in a film. So now people so. see it and just don't see that that's exciting in the future. Yeah. And of course, every one of those had to be rear projected from I think sixteen mil, 16 mil yeah film yeah. it's and uh, <laughs> all these projectors running and all those panels they had in the spaceship every one of them had to be projected they had these great rigs of projectors yeah. going which I which just, I love looking at now because it's soothing to me all these blinking screens that yeah. look like film instead of video I mean they were but there's that aspect of it now yeah that's true and and uh, I remember the one well the, the first time I ever was aware of the film I, I remember I was in San Francisco well I was going to say yeah what was because it's always something that comes up what was your first exposure to it when did you well I, I was in San Francisco with my family and just walked by a shop and there was a poster saying uh, from, from the earth to beyond a great journey or something mm-hmm. bland but it had this image of the, of the wheel the space station, which uh, is in orbit around the Earth, and uh, and the rocket uh, coming out of it, which never mm-hmm. happened in the movie with the, the Pan Am clip. Mm-hmm. It was art. It wasn't a photograph. And uh, I was instantly, I really want to see that. It was almost like I was counting the amount of time before it came out. Because I, I suppose I, I wasn't a very, I was an immigrant kid from England to Winnipeg and not very happy then. And... Uh, Movies were really. It's it's a probably the most the most important thing in my life in a way, I mean books too. But but it was really significant. Was it the escape? Is it from whatever you say you weren't happy? Es- escape, but but also excitement about about future, about the possibilities. And there are always a few films if you're a filmmaker who, where you think, oh wow, I really like to. Be make something that was like be make something yeah. in this form to be a master of that world. And that was, I think, for everybody, there's those films. For me, it was it was the spectacles. It was uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia in that, in that period, although Lawrence was five years earlier, maybe. Um, uh, and uh, Dr. Zhivago. Right. So the big roadshow. Yeah, the big roadshow film. Yeah, the films that had, like, intermission in the middle yeah. which is so pretentious somehow but it's like a big theater you know like a, th- a, th- a theatrical yeah. show where you have an intermission and, and for yeah. a three, you know, three and three and a half hour movie that was a kindness that was it was perfectly yes. know, accepted yes. that people would get up and go to the bathroom or refill their popcorn or something I think War and Peace had two or three yes, you know Sergei Bondarchuk yeah it's I'd an eight hour presentation right something like six five seven yeah, yeah I, I don't just know. remember it being very very long I'd love to see it again but anyway, but it, yeah, so, so that, that used to, and, and it was, and Kubrick, well, it, just to return to, to my personal experience, sure. then I went to see it, and um, 
from that first shot, which once again is, look at it, it's like, it's on the verge of being in a sort of ironic culture we live in now. It's it's easy to sneer at the at it the, the sort of these three planets lining up and this incredibly dramatic music, which was totally new to me. I'd sure, never yeah. listened to Richard Strauss then. Um, and yeah, I only ever knew it as the music from two thousand and one. Yeah, I mean, I was that's that was my by the time like by the time I was five, culturally it had already been taken over. That's right. By the movie? Well, I think it has. I think it. Yeah, I think it. It. Uh, it it's associated with, it and it's used in parodies all the sure, time. Man. Mike Nichols used it in Catch Twenty Two when the woman appears, and um, it's used in various places. And I'm sure the Simpsons have used it. Oh yeah, but Pensacola. <laughs> the uh, they they recreate the entire Donna Man sequence, and the the monolith is a soft drink dispenser. That was, oh really? Yeah, first or second season. I remember that vividly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and then you have this this dawn of man. Is it important to to for the sake of your your broad the podcast to, guys to, to, to 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 put the to lay out the story yeah, of the movie? If the people listening don't know two thousand and one at this point. There is literally nothing we can do for them. No, I, I don't. I don't so. think so. I mean, okay. and and with two thousand and one, I mean, ultimately, it's all theoretical anyway. You can talk about the sequenced events, but what it means is why we're here. Like that's yeah, that's something else entirely. And normally, I hate movies where. Oh, it could mean anything. It's your interpretation. Mm. Like, fuck off. It's like, you know, you have a responsibility as an artist to know what you're saying. Yeah. At least some, somehow. I, I think I think there's... I mean, I have a theory, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, so we can get to that. But, what, but yeah. What uh, would you say is your... I think, well, in that 2001 is a film of sequences, uh, beginning as, you know, we, we can break it in. We can, beginning at the dawn of man, moving on to the discovery of the monolith on the moon... And then culminating in the Jupiter Stargate sequence, I think that it is the story of humanity. I mean, ultimately, and the evolution of mankind, humankind, into whatever form we're going towards. And what Kubrick is doing is positioning the monolith. I don't think the monolith stimulates evolution. A lot of people think that once the mm. once the apes touch the monolith oh, yeah. in the sequence, that that gives them the idea. That's what I think. And yeah. it's, there is a montage that suggests it yeah but i think the monolith is there to witness our points and be a be a a watermark for humanity if we can get to the moon we find one if we can go to jupiter it's waiting for us and the signal is designed to maybe lead us there or we're innovative enough to figure that out the same way that in the beginning the the apes figure out how to use tools and i think that's what it is i think it's about so so the monolith is witnessing it rather than leading it yeah I think, well, I mean, the original title of the short story was The Sentinel, Sentinel yes. not The Guide. So I've always assumed, I think, that that's where it goes. It was a trigger for to warn, in a sense, the, the aliens that yeah. we have reached that point. Now, the only problem with my theory is that whatever happens at the very end to David Bowman is the monolith. Like, it's clearly doing something yeah. to his aged body. Well, it is the Stargate that he goes through. Mm-hmm. And, and then at the end, it's present when he mutates into whatever embryonic yes. star child thing comes out. So... Yes. That's tricky, but I think maybe that's what happens when you reach the aliens, when you reach the intelligence. We have proven ourselves worthy of going on to the next step. Now, yeah. I'm an optimist, and I want to believe that he's not being tortured and murdered in a spacesuit. Oh, I see, like with with anal rec- rectal probes going up. No, I, or I, I never think of the horrors that we you know, we see it as, as yeah. a series of, of 
impulses or images for yeah. you, but it's not. Like, I don't think that, I think that's not representational of what's really happening. But you, you, it's true about the optimism, and I don't think you see that nowadays in, in much art. Am I wrong? I don't think so. I mean, it's it's sort of... Well, it's not where uh, we are right now. Right? No, and, and uh, that was the same year that Apollo 8 went up, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they took that first picture of the Earth with the moon in the foreground. And that picture was, uh, you probably know, suppressed by, by NASA. I did not know. I think, yeah, the government felt, uh, and I, I hope I've got this right, but I believe the government felt that it was, it was um, too one-worldish. They're in the middle of a, of a, of a oh, bitter yeah, cold war yeah. with the Soviet Union. And, and, uh, or they thought, and, and that, that atmosphere, paternalistic secrecy, is buried is is right in the movie oh, because yeah. they, they they say that oh it would be culturally I can't remember what um, Haywood Floyd says when he speaks to the people on the in the in the uh, in that strange chamber on the moon uh, something like it's going to be you know culturally culturally disorienting and uh, sociologically uh, damaging and all this stuff yeah. and and they don't even they don't even imagine sending a mission to Jupiter. And not telling the crew why they're going, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. But what Hitchcock called an icebox problem, right? You, right. you, you figured out later you, you, when, you when you go get a beer out of the icebox. Yeah. But I but think, at the time, it works. Yeah, and it's still, and even a movie like Alien, which just picks up that same theme of blue collar workers who really don't have any idea what their larger purpose is. Yeah, echoes it nicely. I just always assumed that with um, that's true with the two the two astronauts who are conscious and and active, Bowman and and. Mm. I can never remember. Pool. Pool, thank you, Frank yeah. Pool. Uh, Bowman and Pool are the drivers. They they are on their way to do a thing. They're driving the bus, yeah. Whatever it is will be revealed to them, which is great. But then you find out that there's a secret message all along in case of panic and, and computer malfunction. So, yeah. yeah, they're simply not being trusted with yeah. the truth, whatever the truth is. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very that's also a, a product of the time, I think, of that mm-hmm. sort of paternalism. But but it's still optimistic. And, and you know, in the Apollo 11 astronauts i think it was 11 any of the first people um on the moon they they were asked what it was like some of them them said it was like 2001 so that 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 feeling of of space which i don't think i felt was sort of betrayed or gone it was it was abandoned and not in a good way with subsequent movies Uh, alien is a terrific it's one of the few movies where the alien really i mean the, the guy in the spaceship they find who's Heart is torn out. Mm. Is one of the few times you really feel that's di- that's different. That's not because most aliens just look like they're less interesting than creatures you find near the bottom of the sea. Yeah, they're just generally people in suits or puppets or whatever. Yeah, whatever we could realize on a, on a cheap basis exactly. as humans. Arrival is an exception, sure. But but uh, but and and that's why in the end I think Clark and Kubrick, Arthur C. Clark, the screenwriter, didn't want to portray. Aliens, because they just they kept trying, and it just looked stupid. Yeah, and what they came up with was so much more unnerving. And and I'm glad you brought up Arrival because it's the only other film I can think of that is simultaneously about the impossibility of communicating with an intelligence, an alien intelligence, and about the impossibility of rendering an alien creature. Yeah, because we're always going to bring it back to something we kind of understand. But he did, he did a uh, he did a, a render them in the test. In, yeah. Villeneuve. Oh, Villeneuve, yeah, he yeah. did, and it still yeah. kind of looked like. You know, oh really? The heptapods I, sort of look like. I mean, I love it, but they, I thought they were good. They're recognizable. We understand them. Yeah, yeah. But the idea with with two thousand and one's aliens is that they gave up trying because the emphasis was on incomprehensibility. Yeah. We can't like not only can we not understand what their motivations are, we can't see them. 
they're yeah. they're not visible to us as yeah. as the theater goer and as as Bowman. Yeah, and those noises are just so. I mean, Kate won't watch the film again. Uh, really? I, yeah, my my wife and I have just been feuding is pushing it, but uh, I got very excited about the seventy millimeter IMAX release yesterday that was announced. Yeah, and it's going to be showed at Cinesphere. Um, yeah. at Cinesphere in, in fact, Toronto. This episode will be dropping that week so people will oh, surprise go see it hmm. uh it's playing in four locations i'll mention it in the top and tag but uh they're bringing an imax 70 millimeter presentation in and kate's first response was like yep i'm busy do something else why we saw it in 70 millimeter at the light box a few years ago and she found the sound design so uh i think assaultive like she just was physically uncomfortable in the second half of the yeah, movie. Yeah, I can and, see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I it, it doesn't affect me that way, and I completely respect it. Do, do you mean the Stargate sequence? All of it. Um, really? From the yeah, I think from the. It probably started before that. It probably started with the the silence of space during the rescue mission after Pool is disconnected. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's an extraordinary sequence, mm. and and in fact, that's what I was uh, was uh, was meaning about how it's been abandoned. Because part of the that that sound design is um, and not just the sound design, but the the slowness of it, and and the the incredible silence of space, and the vastness of it, and in a sense of I'd even say the boredom of it is is conveyed. Uh, so powerfully that, that you you have that feeling of that's what space when I look up in the night sky that's what I, I see the awfulness of it the, the the vast emptiness the terrifying emptiness of it the inhumanity of it and that's what I find missing from almost every other sci-fi movie every other space movie mm-hmm. and and particularly with silence because people say well you know I went on the web to look at why why What's the what's the justification for everything going in space as they do in Star Wars? And people say, well, people need sound. So people need sound. So, but that means they're they're rejecting the reality of what space is because space is utterly silent. Of course, sure. there's no sound. There's no air. And but the dramatic possibilities of that are so great. Uh, well, the the famous sequence when uh, Bowman fires himself into the emergency uh, entrance the airlock, to yeah. the, the airlock and it's uh, he has all these um, sounds going off in the space bar like and it's it's really scary I find it scary anyway and I saw it I saw it just recently again and was transfixed and then he explodes out and it's absolutely silent and the cut from very loud sound to silence is so powerful yeah oh no the use of silence is something that uh, and Kubrick was again just scientific accuracy he he wanted it to feel as real as possible in imagining this this impossible journey but what you get is the the absolute sense of cinematic control uh in the silence yes in the the lack of sound yes it's it's a representation of what it would be like but it also absolutely focuses you on the screen you you start looking harder to yes. see what's going on because we're denied that that half of the experience. Yes. And Lucas's argument for Star Wars was always that you know, sound is half the experience and you know I wanted to I want people to feel the action and, and experience the, the full velocity of the of the, the ships flying around. It's like 
fine, but you're making World War II dogfight movies. That's like Absolutely. That, that's what he's doing. And and Star Wars westerns and all these different. He just throws all these genres. It's a very yeah. different thing. Exactly. It's more like a fantasy adventure than hard science fiction. And I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I think you know, whatever. It's Star Wars. There, those yeah. things exist outside the uh, yeah. the realm of of arguable science fiction. But yeah, it's you know Asimov's. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase, but uh, it's uh, uh, the, the three phases of science fiction. One is adventure dominant, and the next is technology dominant, and the third is society dominant or you know human dominant. And mm-hmm. and Star Wars is very much of the first. And okay. I think that most sci-fi now is not real sci-fi. It's adventure films and comic books and and so forth. Yeah, Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror is. Um, one of the few things that's come along that is actually real science fiction. Yeah, but the but, problem with Black Mirror is that it always, it, just by creating the the frame that it's created for itself, it's always just like aha, look, it, whatever it is is going to yeah. be bad. It's going to yeah. Just, you're, there's no except for uh, San Junipero, yeah, yeah, which is sweet, and it's the only one. Yeah, it's the only one with real empathy for its characters. I find everybody yeah. else is um, just. It's the Twilight Zone sting where whatever you thought was going to be accomplished will simply turn back in on the protagonist. So now, four seasons in, I'm just waiting for the reveals. And I find myself increasingly less interested in investing in the stories. Is it coming again? Oh, they'll make more. Yeah, yeah. Netflix never lets anything die. I think there'll be another one. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe he maybe he'll go into, you know, reproductive technology or something. A little more interesting than just implants in the head. Yeah, it'll be clones. It'll always be clones. Clones are cheap. You just get the same actor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's um, yeah. That 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 sense of uh, of um, of the use of silence, but also also the we're just talking about Bowman firing into the uh, into the emergency uh, uh, airlock mm-hmm. is one of two cuts in the film that is I think one of the most two of the most extraordinary cuts in movie history. The other one, of course, is the bone. Moon, moon, um, moon Watcher, I think his name. Uh, his bone goes flying up in the air, turns around, and becomes a spaceship. That's one of the most joyful moments for me in cinema when I saw it the first time and every time. It's just this, yeah. Basically, once we learn how to use tools, everything else is a refinement, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. and there's something quite funny about that. It's quite, quite comic. It sort of summarizes human history in in one cut. Yeah, and I I find that really delightful. And then starts this whole waltz with this um, oh, you know, very 19th yeah. century you know, music going on and, and very much looking back, in a sense, to, to, the, to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I'm, I'm just making it sound very intellectual. It's no, just, no, it's it's just a very, there. yeah, it's just a very um, satisfying and slightly humorous and obviously very sexual imagery of yeah, this no, spaceship I mean, penetrating this large yeah. and there's all this sexual imagery the sper- discovery ship looks like a spermatozoan mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's all but it never it never feels like it's intellectually imposed the, the, the enormous reality of the spectacle is so overwhelming and I really want to see it again in 70 mil it's so overwhelming that, that I mean you know, films. Was it Lucas said films are binary? They either work or they don't. And this one, for all its, you know, step back and criticize it for all its flaws, it's so overwhelming. I think in its imagery and its originality that it just it it, it kind of takes you over. Yeah, I I have always wondered what it would have been like to pitch it in the first place. And I know it went through all the different iterations, Journey Beyond the Stars or Journey Beyond the Sun, whatever they called it at first. And, yeah, it's a really terrible title. Yeah. 
Um, I, I got to talk to Douglas Trumbull about it a couple of times over the years. Oh, really? And, yeah, and he's, you know, well, we did this in a tank and we did this over there. The, uh, the first effects for the film were just conceived, the cloud tank effects, the stuff they worked with with for the... Yeah, the slit, the slit, slit screen. Slit screen, yes. Yeah. Those were developed in a walk-up on 72nd Street in New yeah. York City. Polaris and, films. Yeah, yeah, just the smallest rooms, these little warehouse spaces yes. above bakeries and, and restaurants, and the idea that you're going to create something that will literally change the way people see cinema. Yeah. And you start in the smallest, kind of clumsiest way to refine that vision into what this film became. I, I just... It's an experimental movie in its second half. It, it's remarkable that right. this was sent out into the world as an MGM 70mm Cinerama roadshow event. Yeah, what a risk. But yeah, I, now we simply accept, you say 2001 and everybody has their image of it, but that language was like it didn't exist. Well, I think there was experimental filmmakers. There's a guy called uh, Jordan Belson who did these experimental films that look like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, they I were remember Pauline Kael taking a swipe at... Uh, the critic of the New Yorker of 2001 saying, oh, Jordan Belson does this stuff better. But I don't, I don't think that's, I guess, crap. <laughs> it was, uh, and, and it was those uh, effects that I, I'm, I'm not sure what's Trumbulls and what's the other guys, Wallin Beavers or something. Beavers, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what they did, what Trumbull did, what the others did. But, but uh, originally, uh, Kubrick was really taken with this Canadian film, the National Film Board of Canada film called Universe, mm-hmm. which, was, which used this technique where you have a clear paint thinner can or a glass jar, and then you drop various paints in it and film it with lots of light in, in high slow, in, in slow-mo and created these starbursts and so forth. And, um, and he was like, wow, this is really good. And and uh, tried to hire them, but they uh, they didn't want to work with him. <laughs> there's, there's the other Canadian connection, of course. If, if it's, I don't know if you, oh, <laughs> your podcast right. doesn't really care about Canadian connections, yeah, no, but it's always valid. But uh, yeah, but of course, there's Douglas Rain, who narrated Universe, and uh, and Kubrick kept thinking, I want somebody who sounds like that, and he kept hiring Martin Balsman people, um, and ended up with Douglas Rain, who who really Canadian actor, who really uh, apparently resented. The fact that he's become most famous for the yeah. two-day job, yeah, and a monotone. If you're an actor, yeah. the last thing you want to be known for is your lack of range. Yeah, but it's 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 a great character, Hal. I mean, he's uh, he is he's slightly look, watching it the other day. You realize he's slightly flirtatious. He's sort of slightly not camp, but he's a little bit. Um, uh, oh. I, don't you think there's something strange about this mission, Dr. Yeah, he, Bowman? And, he insinuates. Yeah, and, and it says, like, oh, you're working up to a psychology report, says Bowman. He says, well, of course I am. And he says, oh, says, I think you should take a stress pill. And he's very... And, of course, he turns out to be one of the great, you know, great villains in movie yeah. history. I I honestly don't know if Hal's a villain. That's what, that's what I continue to love about the really? character. Really? Yeah. I think that the other thing about... 2001 is in the same way that it refuses to give us aliens that we can understand I think the other thing that Clark is doing in his script is saying that when we make a computer that is our equal we won't like our greatest mistake is thinking that it'll think like we do yeah and I think Hal is I mean yes 2010 has that whole explanation of why it happens Mm. I think it's better if the whole thing comes from his from Hal's inability to reconcile the blown sensor thing. The idea that that's the thing he becomes fixated on, the sensor that doesn't 
the sensor that doesn't fail that he detects mm -hmm. and then everything else is an overreaction and overcompensation from a logic machine that cannot understand a mistake right um, that's so much more disturbing to me and he chooses you he know, kills he, everyone he's he, just like nope this no this happened I, I you will not tell me it didn't and then he just gradually murders everyone in his way yeah 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 finds excuses finds ways to do it it's far more disturbing to me to think that my phone is plotting against me than and, um, and, and of course he's become uh, whenever anyone discusses it and it's become much more of a discussion now uh, there, uh, there area, those are the I guess the two areas where one of the, the two areas are where it feels very modern is in the AI artificial intelligence sure, uh, sure. world and also the, 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 the Stargate sequence and the use now of psychedelics coming back and yeah. being talked about as therapeutic tools and, and you know pot's going to be legal in this country and it's it's um, those things feel present, but but especially AI, in that whenever anyone talks about oh the computers could plot against us, they, they they'll talk about Terminator. I yeah, guess. Skynet comes up. Skynet a comes up a lot, but but Hal and Skynet are the two things that people talk about. Sure, always. Hal and Hal, Hal is sort of the clean version of Skynet. He's not going to nuke you. He's going to trick you. He's going to just suggest that you take the stress pill or go check something in the ship and then disconnect you and, and cut your tether and it's it's worse it's more insidious because he never he never breaks character he's always very calm and very thoughtful yeah. and he pretends that he cares Skynet just wipes us out yeah Skynet is just evil straight out yeah exactly. and, and, and Hal is neurotic or messed up and yeah. confused and he cares and, too much yeah, that's that's it. That's yeah, what this, he would this say. mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Yeah, which Something again like. is defensiveness in the most disturbing way to me. Yeah, I think that's true. He's he's the the scene where where he does where he kills Pool and uh, and Pool goes flying off into space. You never see it. You never see the actual murder, and you never see the point of death. It's just this terribly meaningless death. At least Vonnegut had a line about it. The you know, but basically, the, the 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 great adventure of the outward bound and going into space is uh, the the it's it's boredom and meaningless death. That's what space brings us. Yeah. And Vonnegut, of course, is very dark about those things and very very you know, very I think very clear eyed about it. But it has that feeling. Pulls pulls death when he's flying away, and then and then Bowman coming in and I mean people say it's an inhuman movie, but but. Or, or it's a or cold movie, mm -hmm. which it is, but but Bowman trying to get back into the spaceship, that famous scene, you know, open the pod bay doors, Hal, which has become one of the great lines of movie history. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. And his eyes, the the lights on on Bowman's on uh, Kier Delay's eyes, and and they're darting back and forth. You can see every thought as he's calculating, as he's finally realizing how serious the situation is mm -hmm. that the computer is trying to kill him. And uh, and how he's going to get out of it, and uh, it's it's I think it, it extraordinary, yeah. and and very and very much and there's great acting in the film actually, because not only uh, Keir Delay and 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 um, Gary Lockwood is um, Frank Poole. Apparently, he came up with the idea of them going into the space pod. That was Gary Lockwood's idea because oh, it was to to speak quietly. Yeah, to speak quietly, and then somebody else came up with the idea of of, of, of reading lips. But those performances. Which are, are I think really fantastic. Um, also Dan Richter, who plays one of the who plays the lead ape, 
and the the other and he was a mime and trained them all. Yeah. And the poor guy who who did the makeup, uh, Freeborn, 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 Freeborn yeah. yeah, of course never got recognized for it. And uh, Planet of the Apes got the honorary Oscar that year. And they yeah. snuck onto the set. Apparently, they had a spy on the set. The Planet of the Apes. Yeah, the Planet of the Apes makeup people had a spy on the set, and they went back and stole some ideas. But apparently. I'm sure it was all too real for Planet of the Apes. I mean, you need to be able to see Roddy McDowell's eyes. You yeah. need to be able to see the humanity in those actors. But but, but when when Dan Richter's touching the um, that scene where they all come in and the, what your wife would find intrusive uh, sound uh, is it Ligeti? I can't remember. Um, so, yeah. yeah, touching the slab and just touching it and pulling away and touching it is fantastic. Yeah. His performance is, I think, really. Really great, actually. It well, it's and again because it's not a human character, we immediately just I mean, people assume for years that they were real apes. Yeah. They, there was no. Yeah. There's no appreciation of the performance. Yeah. Right? And also, in when I return to it, I, I stop thinking about it after about thirty seconds because I get caught up in the movie again and just watching the yes. entire, the environmental performance. Yeah. In fact, I'm really curious to see it in IMAX now because the the additional resolution, will make i assume those backdrops look even more like backdrops which i don't see on blu-ray or dvd that'll be interesting it was visible in 70 it was obvious in 70 millimeter that there are painted backdrops in the in the desert sequences nearly okay but i'd never noticed it until i saw it again as an adult well they're front projection photographs Mm. but there Um, are backdrops too really yeah partly painted yeah very clearly so it always bothered me a little bit later on when i knew more about uh, you know early man is that it bothered me that they were totally in desert. It, they should have been in steppe. But it's a, it's a minor thing, but yeah. they, they went to Namibia and, and, and filmed all that. It's very much... Um, oh, just speaking about the coldness, sure. there's a scene where, a very small scene, where Frank Poole, Gary Lockwood, is on a tanning bed. Yes. And, and his parents have a birthday message, kind of a performative, a little slightly false little message, video mm-hmm. message they send him. And he says, uh, a little flatter, please, Hal. And he's completely unmoved by his parents. And I, it, it's weird to say that, but, but as, a, as a kid, I was shocking to me because movies were always about this sort of, oh, parents love their children and everyone, like, everyone likes each other. They're, they're, that sort of coldness. I mean, you see it in, I don't know, Antonioni and other directors for sure, but I hadn't seen it then. Mm-hmm. And, like and that and, emotional remoteness? Yeah, and the emotional remoteness throughout and the individual... like. Bowman and Poole each have their own little screen, and it's this sort of um, foretelling of a world of of emotional isolation and focusing on screens and being entirely cut off from from each other and other people. It's it's maybe you know Kubrick himself, of course, was kind of emotionally remote. Although when you actually, you know, privately, I think he was a lot more emotional than yeah than he seems. But have, have you seen Film Worker, the documentary? No, uh, it's no. about Leon Vitali, who was his. His yeah. go-to, his major domo, for twenty-five years, really, from Bear Linden on, and Vitali talks about uh, surprising emotional depths. Uh, he would set up while he was shooting. I think it was The Shining. Um, while he was shooting The Shining, he had video monitors set up because one of his cats was dying, oh, really? and he wanted to be able to watch or or dog, but he wanted to be able to watch the pet um, right. throughout. And so he had a way of keeping an eye on the animal, and he would be devastated for days after one of his pets died and oh, all really? that stuff. So, yeah, I think... Obviously loved his daughter. His daughter appears in, yeah. the, in 2001 in a very nice little sequence. But it's still another scene of a parent separated from a child. Yeah, when that's you, right. When you point that out. 
uh, on a video screen. I, I think part of it is that maybe he is trying so hard to remove himself emotionally from the films he makes. That yeah. I, he, he was a very cerebral filmmaker, very very clinical setups and studies, and you know the God's eye views and the tracking shots and the, the sense of control and command. But I think like the more I learn about him after the camera stopped rolling, the more fascinated I am. I, I found that Clockwork Orange to be, after 2001, I was young, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, very impressive, but but also just very, so dark. Such a, such a, such a dark, dark vision. I guess that they've all, all been dark, really. Yeah, I mean, he made Strangelove before. Well, Strangelove is, is, of course, I think the perfect film. I think it's an extraordinary film. And, and um, this, having just seen uh, The Death of Stalin, <laughs> it's the only other film I've seen that manages to have that balance of horror and, and real hilarity. Yeah. But uh, Strangelove is, is... And, of course, Strangelove has one of the greatest deaths in movie history, as Colonel Kong rides the H-bomb down. And then 2001 has another of the great... Hal's death. In, in the in the 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 red the red computer room and those little those those little touches like the little uh, plexiglass the cubes you know, cubes, the, cubes the slides, the slides just them. coming out so slowly afterwards and him slowly um, deteriorating and dying in front of us mm-hmm. is uh, is very um, it's very touching yeah. and 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 the, the song he sings by the way is is the first song Daisy. Daisy, give me your answer. Do is the first song that a computer-generated voice ever sang of Marvin Minsky. Oh, who is it? Like which, which you know, one of the great giants of early computers mm-hmm. in the early '60s. So he actually so used, it predates 2001. He actually used the thing. Yeah, he actually did. He actually did use it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. I think too that the thing about that sequence now it feels like watching someone succumb to dementia. It, it's really yes. like the older I've gotten, the more. Yes. The more lost you experience, like the the, yeah. the the changes the way you relate to everything essentially. But you yeah. know, my grandfather had uh, pretty profound Alzheimer's, and the first time I saw two thousand one after he died, it was unnerving to me to listen to how regress. Yeah, because yeah, that's you know my mind is going. I can feel it. Is it takes on a different texture. Um, please stop, Dave. Yeah, please. Stop. The pleading I'm is afraid. yeah really disturbing, especially because he never breaks um, his tone, his timber never no. never no. cracks. And the other, the, the mirroring of that too is the the scene you were talking about delays acting in the scene where he's trying to negotiate with how to get back in, but his voice never goes up either. It's the most distressing thing about that movie is no one ever raises their voice except the apes, <laughs> right? The apes shriek, and then it goes relatively silent, yeah. or monotone, yeah, uh, level. And then at the very end, we return to the the noises that are presumably the aliens, which just sound like furniture being moved and creatures shrieking. Yeah, and it's that that sine wave is is just so odd and and clever to bookend it sonically that yeah. way. Yeah, and I don't even know That's if it was true. intentional. It's I, just I, the way I, it works I, out. I never thought of that. Yeah, what did you what did you think of the uh, of the Louis the Fourteenth uh, sort of Trump hotel? Yeah, with well, the, <laughs> the end hotel is exactly how someone posited in the seventies. I think that he's it must have been Harlan Ellison. He wrote about it constantly in the seventies. Um, it's probably a zoo that you know, like this is what it looks like to to David Bowman, but it's not like this. Yes, and I've always thought that 
Yeah, it's an idea of refinement. It's not like it's clearly not not real yeah. in the way that you know the glass breaks and everything is just sort of fragile. And if he wanted to, he could probably put his hand his hand through the wall and find whatever else is on the other yeah. side. But the idea of it being fancy is unnerving in a different way because everything else we've seen has been really utilitarian and functional. Yeah. And then suddenly you're in this Baroque room yeah. where everything has curlicues on it and, and trimmings. Oh, it's it. kind of hideous, too. Yeah, oh, it's vulgar. Yeah. But it's too nice to, to mess up, so you're automatically calmed by it. Right. Theoretically. Like, if you moved into this hotel, you would treat it very nicely. And, and yeah, Trumpian is exactly right. It's what he thinks looks yeah. classy. Yeah. And so it's a way of maybe, if it's if it's a projection, if it's the thing that's in his head to make him calm, Yeah, you move carefully and slowly in a room like that. And yeah. it's very, very clever. And it's that, that sequence where, where he's looking, he, he's in the pod looking out and he sees us, um, himself, older, in a spacesuit looking back and then you see his point of view and the pod's disappeared. Then he goes into a room and looks out and then there's this old man yeah. having dinner Just each time and then he, he turns around so slowly and then he's gone those jumps feel absolutely right they feel like a dream and uh, and but also you know i, I have to say like like, uh, like a psychedelic oh, yeah? experience yeah and uh, they never did uh lsd you know, as kubrick talked about it. i'd never do that He'd be afraid he'd lose some. He's too much of a control freak to ever risk. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's that's exactly right. And uh, I don't know if Clark ever did, but um, but it's but they did research that they did. There were those early experiments which were shut down later uh, with psychedelics, and they they were secretly trying to you know find out about how that worked. And uh, people, Pauline Kell said again. uh, I think she said that. the, 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 they were when you know the first screenings of the movie were disastrous. Like half the audience walked out, mm-hmm. and and all the critics were like totally negative, almost all. And then bit by bit, a younger audience. It felt I think it was quite generational. I took my dad to see it for about two days after I first saw it, mm. and um, and he he really liked it and respected it, but didn't really. It was completely strange to him. And I think it was a, it was a generational shift. And uh, uh, then they they say they marketed it. They marketed it with I think the the log line was um, the ultimate trip. The ultimate trip. Yeah. yeah. And they, they sold it as a midnight movie. And and, and uh, yeah. And such a uh, weird. And Paul and Kale said like, well, going to see a movie because it it's like you know you take acid before you go see it. That's like going to see a Doris Day Rock Hudson movie for decorating trips. For, for, for decorating tips. Yeah. Which, which is, people were doing. So yeah, I guess so. There, yeah. there was definitely an audience for that too. But it, but it did take off. I mean, mm-hmm. it did, it did make a lot of money. Actually, I think in the end, it yeah. actually was a successful, successful it's, film. It's the kind of, I, I wonder if that's it too. The only way you can relate to the experience, the only way you can describe the experience to someone else, is to recontextualize it so radically because the film had no precedent. Now, the only, I mean, people. You can describe it as uh, a science fiction film, but that's not really what it is. It's, it is still um, singular. There, there really isn't anything else like it. There no. are movies that try to be like it, and then they're like 2001, but they're not 2001. And they tried, like 2010, they tried to explain it 
They try mm-hmm. to be more more programmatic and or more um, more human, a- explicit, right? yeah. more human, more emotional stakes. The Cold War thing. Even Cameron, I think, I read recently. He said, "Oh, you saw it again," and thought, "Ah, they should have been more emotional." In it. <laughs> like, you know, of course. Nope. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. It, it's this. Yeah. This cool look at at human beings, where they came from, and where. And also, you know, people play it safe now. The audiences because evolution is actually controversial yeah so 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 you don't actually see think people you know films that actually say we were apes we evolved into humans because they don't want to i think this is my theory that they don't want to be too explicit about that and that that that's brave in that way too it, it seems you know, obvious perhaps to people who do accept evolution but it's it's rare it's rare in that though i do think that they there's a lot of emphasis on individualism in the movie uh, and violence, that the, the ape becomes successful and becomes a technology user, becomes, a, 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 becomes human because he's violent. Mm-hmm. And what we know about evolution is, is not quite that. It's much more cooperative. It's much more about the group. Right. But and if you're introducing the concept of a monolith, then everything changes, right? It doesn't have to be a, a direct representation of theory. It's no. infected by whatever fantastical element you bring to it. Yeah. So if the monolith was the uniting force for one tribe, then there you have community work. It's just they're group working as a group to kill yeah. the other group. Yeah, that's true. They, they do they do go and uh, fight the others as a group. It's um, but I think it was a, it was a much more early vision vision of the the dawn of man mm-hmm. and also just. The title that obviously it's pre-feminist revolution. Sure. It's, yeah. There are there's the little girl and there are presumably the couple some, of stewardesses and yeah and some females in Moonwatcher's tribe we see like yeah. hiding with the babies yeah but yeah no this is a masculine view of yeah. the future male yeah. dominated I mean, white male dominated specifically yeah uh, and the um, yeah there's there's I suppose there's not a single person of color in the yeah you know, the only other. I think the only other non-white Americans we see are the Russians, and they're just presented as suspicious, creepy guys sneaking around trying to oh, get I, information. I, it's I a great very, scene, very right? accurate. And uh, Margaret Tizak as the um, as the uh, oh, do bring along that delightful little girl. Yes, <laughs> Leonard Rossiter doing this most unctuous, creepy guy. Mm. Yeah, who later he used him in um, Barry Lyndon. But um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, a very masculine. Very, um, iso- very top-down kind of world. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it grew directly out of the Mad Men reality, where everybody is just a white guy. Where that where they were done Absolutely. in the '60s, and that's yeah. They're, they're a project in '65. That's what it's going to look like. That's right. That's right. But it's just just to go back to the the the, the wonder of it. It was um, to, when he cuts inside the discovery when I was young and, and now watching it again that centrifuge is still amazing that there's this big wheel which they turn and the camera stays in uh, yeah. but the camera turns round so it looks like the guy's running on a treadmill like a hamster the actor but but it the, the illusion of that is extraordinary and the one where, where Bowman comes out of the pod climbs down the uh, comes out of the centerpiece climbs down the ladder and pulls whose food is glued to the yeah. ta- I mean the, the way they did is I mean pretty I suppose it's pretty obvious how, how they would have done that but 
but they had to. But seeing it, it's from, obvious yeah, now. It's, right? Yeah, but seeing that for the for anyone seeing that for the first time, it still is enormously powerful. It still really works, and without, of course, any CGI, any computer generated imagery, mm-hmm. without any of that. Yeah, I had to explain it to. I think it was a nephew of Kate's, maybe years and years ago. Now, ten years. Ago. A nephew of yours? Uh, a nephew of Kate's. Okay, oh, right. um And he was. Yeah, it was. It was him. He was asking about you know why is it all why is it so revered and i was trying to explain that the only other science fiction thing that was of stature at the time was star trek the television series star trek which was in no way uh, a representation of us in the now in the uh, humanity it didn't have for all of its talk about strange new worlds it had no larger view it was just, you know, wagon train in space. It was a bunch of people flying around right. doing stuff. Right. And 2001 stopped and thought about what it would actually be like to confront the unknown and to to accept that this was happening around us, that, you know, to have real people or human beings plunged into this giant-scale adventure. Because Floyd is introduced as a commuter, and suddenly he's dealing with an alien technology that's super secret and, and all of this stuff. And then he disappears and then we have these bus drivers and they're suddenly thrust... Over and over again, we see yeah. ordinary people, for their universe, forced to confront something much, much larger than them. Yeah. And Star Trek simply, you know, it was a guy with a bump on his head or it was a woman in a scanty dress with a different skin color. And the, the, yeah. you know, the green lady is the alien. It's not in any way comparable. So to have this come out at, at a point yeah. in time where... Science fiction was kind of the cheap stepchild of, of genre. Yeah. Uh, just evolving out of the pulp monster movies of the 50s. Yeah. It was even more revelatory. And, and what I was trying to explain to him was that we live in the world that 2001 made. Yeah. Um, That's right. And That's then right. even when Star Trek tried to go back, and tr- when, when Paramount tried to relaunch Star Trek... Which they, they probably with, wouldn't have done without 2001. Right. They went with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, yes. And rather than copy Star Wars, they copied 2001 and tried to do some kind of grand sci-fi humanistic thing with an ambiguous ending and an alien we couldn't fully understand yeah. and all of that and you can see how how deeply ingrained Kubrick's vision is how it reinfected Star Trek mm-hmm. and that Star Trek didn't know how to handle it so it mm-hmm. treats those ideas as an antibody and it ultimately rejects them for mm-hmm. the rest of the Star Trek films that came out which were much more swashbuckly adventure yeah and it's that's that's the the way I tried to explain it to him, and he sort of understood, I think. But it's almost impossible now to conceive of a world before two thousand and one. Yeah, um, yeah. It it re it it started. We now live in a world where a cinematic world where there's tons of so called science fiction mm-hmm. and tons of space movies, and it, it really did begin there. Yeah. And there isn't. I mean, I guess in the nineteen fifties there were those. Those sort of uh, cheap science fi- science fiction movies, but yeah, they, they were they were all cheap, and yeah. uh, and the obsession with which Kubrick pursued this, and everybody who worked on it talks. I mean, you've met obviously you know, met Trumbull, and yeah. and he did he did a film um, Silent, Silent Running, Running, yeah, and also didn't he do that um, um, brain uh, brainstorm brainstorm yeah with the show scan process yeah both of those are kind of interesting films Mm. i think well they dare to reach for something yeah i mean silent running it's it's almost a western really it's about an outlaw who goes away on the run with his friends and then yeah but it is the way that it's handled yeah and the other thing the other film i always forget to mention is solaris of course yeah because it is that 
exact thing where Moss Film said, make us a 2001, right. and Tarkovsky took it in his own direction. And he didn't like 2001, I read. And uh, well, I, He, he I, made a movie about love, right? He made a 2001 that's all about human emotion. Yes. It's funny, I don't really... I never really liked it that much. I don't know why. It was a remade, wasn't it? I yeah, Cyber. George Clooney. Clooney is the lead, yeah. It's great. Is it's, it? It's a really underrated film for me. I gotta see it again. Yeah. It's pretty hard to... Oh, well, it's not hard so, to find anymore. What's that one with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, when the, he wake, the guy wakes oh, up Oh, Passengers. Through. Ugh, no. Yeah, no, but the first half of it kind of worked, I thought, but mm. after that... Yeah, yeah. And right up until it becomes what it is and yeah, just, yeah 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 and that was that's the, the you know what, whatever you may argue about one may argue about the ending of 2001 it's it's dedicated to a, a vision and, and it, it may be what you know once again Pauline Kael called it or somebody called it a shaggy god story but uh that yeah, sounds like Kael yeah it's it's and yeah you can all I can always see yeah yeah I can see that but it remains just enormously powerful, and 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 that when you're saying that pe- people are confronting things that they don't know in the in the, in the, in the sense of alien, they're also confronting a universe that's terrifyingly bleak. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 just those shots of the moon bus traveling across the lunar landscape, um, in with the with that the screeching choir mu- music. Yeah going on it's it's just unbelievably strange you cut inside and they're eating sandwiches and talking like u.s army guys and, and there's this sense of 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 the utter strangeness of it and the utter emptiness of it that is that i don't think has really been captured since yeah or before alien maybe alien is the film that i think about where all of the sequels have in some way and I love some of them, but I think all of those films have in some way undermined its power, which is that if you go too far, you'll pay for it. Yeah. Just the sense that the universe is filled with these hideous monsters that we just don't know about, and we're so much better off not knowing about them. Yeah. 2001, I don't think, is quite as cruel. People die horribly and unnecessarily, but it, there's a reason for it the, that always comes back to us. Everyone who dies in 2001 dies at a human hand. I mean, they built Hal, so we're oh, responsible. But the universe doesn't destroy us. It's us. We're, we're our own problem. We're our own worst enemy. We're our own constant yeah. problem. And in the end, if you make it all the way to the end of whatever this, this route is that we follow Bowman onto, you become something else. But you don't die. Like he's, yeah, he's transformed. Whatever, whatever he is is still there. And yeah. that's much more optimistic to me than yeah, the, the I, cold reading. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, Alien is. Gr- I mean, Alien works for me because of the design and the. I mean, it's sort of a monster in a house movie. Yeah, right? but, well, but Stephen it, King said perfectly. Like, it's a haunted house film. It just yeah. you can't leave the house because yeah. the house is in space. Yeah, yeah. Although I did it, I remember being annoyed because I said, "Oh no, you shouldn't have." When the, when the spaceship blows up, it should be silent. Yeah. Because in two thousand one, I, t- I for a brief time I hung out with uh, the director. Brian De Palma, oh, yeah. and he was making Mission to Mars, and I said, "Oh, you've got to do what 2001 does. You know, you've got to make it silent." But he did. Yeah. Although that one scene with um, uh, the plummet to Mars, where the oh yeah the, the rope misfires and Tim yeah. Robbins is like 20 feet away from salvation, yeah, yeah for a good yes. six or eight minutes, that's pretty damn close. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, the Alien films are are. Um, it's an, another another one that was launched by two thousand one, and, and yeah. I, you know I don't think those 
And then what, what about Close Encounters? Where would you see that fitting into the whole alien-human? I think, well, it's also deeply optimistic. I, uh, I love the film, and, actually. And, I, I like yeah. it very much. But it's a human lens straight through. Like, it's an earthbound film where the aliens yeah. come to us. Yeah. But as far as giant meditative entertainments, it's practically the only other film I would hold up with 2001. And they're they're so different, but they are ultimately asking the same question, which is, who are we and what are we doing here? Just in very, very different ways. Yeah, I, I, I remember that my feeling about it was, was, you know, I was judgmental of Alien because it came out, I don't know if it came out, but I saw it right after Close Encounters. It must have been the same year, uh, or within a year. Summer of 79, so a year and a half. Yeah, a year and a half, yeah. And I remember being like, oh... There was this great sort of hopeful feeling, which came out, which was sort of subsequent to to uh, Star Wars, which which when I saw it, I was old enough to sort of recognize all the World War Two stuff and the Western stuff, and and just saw it as a as a fun pastiche and not a, not really a serious film, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess I was more judgmental in those days or something, <laughs> but but I was angry because I was a I was a peace activist, and um, the the evil empire stuff, right? With the very clear references to the Soviet Union, and uh, and then Reagan picked up yeah, those terms. Yeah. He picked up the term evil empire, and and he referenced, and people immediately picked up his uh, the, his defense initiative, yeah. you know, having uh, weapons in space, and and as uh, as called it Star Wars, and uh, and I saw it as a I saw it as a negative thing that, that our vision of the future was. Uh, was endless war, and I still see it that way. Actually, yeah. I still see it that way. Star Trek, at least, is well. We're going somewhere. It's a journey. Well, Star Wars is like it's endless war. It's it's like the it's like the apes around the watering hole in two thousand and one. That's the vision of the future. And two thousand and one and Close Encounters are much more positive visions. Uh, you could argue that Close Encounters is a bit a bit too Spielberg, a bit too cuddly or whatever. But I I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I just, frankly, like a child, love that film. Yeah, so do and, I. And 2001, going back to it, it's it's colder and it's, you know, Nietzschean and, and uh, you know, we need to become Superman and it's scary. But it feels, like I said, that tanning bed scene with Poole, that, it, those kind of human interactions, the, the coldness of human interactions feels carries a truth about our world and certainly carries a truth about space that is as fresh now when I watched it the other night is as fresh now as it was 50 years ago yeah it doesn't I mean it dates in a way because the the, the whiteness of it and the very clean cut ideas and visions but oh yeah it's it's vision of the future is from 1968 but it also feels now because we've surpassed it chronologically and we know that that's not our future it's easier to deal with somehow it feels like a film from an alternate timeline yeah where oh yeah if, if we'd stayed on the space race if we'd actually continued if the apollo program hadn't ended and nasa hadn't just pivoted to the space shuttle which was inspired apparently by 2001 really uh well supposedly the designs originally looked much more like the clipper it, it's it's a fascinating thing now because it looks like nothing else and remains distinct like there is no other film like it even the sequel approximates some of its framing but that's the most the, I should the see that again it's been years since I've seen it it's fine yeah it is it's fine and there's some really nice small moments between the actors where they're just clearly filling time in the, in the midsection mm. but yeah it just again it tries to 
unknit one of the greatest questions ever asked, and it's not going to be a satisfying resolution. No, no, you, you it probably didn't. You know, I can see why they made it commercially, but it, it didn't. It didn't really need that. But but you know, science fiction is, of course, always really, really bad at predicting the future. Yeah. It, but it when it gets some things right, where it's fantastic. But yeah, it was the the world has changed enormously. Or you, but you said about the white man thing. I was just remembering that uh, the year before it came out, uh, the Expo sixty seven in Montreal mm-hmm. was called Man and His World. Oh yeah, and so it was. It's the whole culture was was like that, and but it's it's so you know we've moved on from that a lot, but it is. I do kind of regret the the loss of that optimistic spirit you can see it in the design you know in the in the the, the design of the chairs the the the, uh, the whole well let's just be logical let's make things bright let's make them clean and mass produced let's yeah. and functional and comfortable which seems to be important in yeah, the future yeah and and uh and the uh, uh the, the practicality of of uh of, of everything just the, the idea of the space wheel and the centrifuge and the and the, the the creature comforts that they have, but everything bright and white and and nothing shadowed and all of it, uh, nothing like that room, nothing like a, a comfy couch. Yeah. But there's something something optimistic and uh, I think exciting about that 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 we've lost. But actually, that was that that little rant was sort of incoherent. I, no, I, 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 I understand think, it completely. Yeah, I, I think I think what I mean is is just there there was a tremendous optimism which we, which, we, you know, politically we feel like we're, we're just lost. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was just reading that uh, that Cuba um, tried to get insurance in case aliens were discovered before he released the oh, film. Oh, I think I read about that. So. That was the optimism that they had. They actually thought we were on the brink of that. And um, imagine a time where that sort of news would be singular. I mean, now at this point, right now in our in our technological state, I think if if Twitter just started to to spread the story, oh, by the way, aliens, yes. it would just be like, oh, great. Now what? <laughs> One more thing. Really? I think I don't know. I think the every every science fiction film regards the revelation of alien life as either something wonderful or something horrible. You know, but they're, certainly they're, impactful. Yeah, they're either going to invade us and destroy us, or they're here and what do we do? Yeah. And I, I think right now, if there were aliens uh, discovered, we would all just be like, oh, Jesus Christ, what do they want? Like, what is it now? Yeah. It's one more thing. <laughs> one more thing to worry about. Because, and that, that's the thing, too. Like everybody's stimulating. Yeah, everybody's talking about how... Area 51, you know, the super secret place where they've hidden the aliens. It, that conspiracy theory is over now because there's no way if Trump knew about it, he wouldn't say it. He would, Like, it would come out. He, That's true. He can't not say People, did you know? A lot of people didn't know. There's aliens. He would have said it. I think the Obama said it, it's the question he got asked the most yeah. by ordinary people. See, that I get. What? The truth is, yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting. I uh, well, we'll see, or we won't see. Just the you idea know, that as, uh, Arthur Clarke said, either, either we're alone in the universe or we're not, and either way, it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily terrifying, yeah. but I think our uh, current technological status, which is that we are broadcasting television and, mo- and radio into the universe, you know, for decades now, I think that kind of proves that if there is intelligent life out there, they want nothing to do with us. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, well, what, was that, what was that movie where this, those teenage aliens came down because they'd seen... Uh, oh, it was, um, it was Dante's called. Explorers, right? Was it? Yeah, Big Puppet Aliens. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, there's um, a Galaxy Quest. Oh, God bless. Which is... Which is great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. The third act, maybe not. But. Oh, no, it's great. It ends in a, it ends like a Star Trek movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it is yeah. so completely committed to that, yes. to that bit. And the aliens were... I can't remember the actors who, who did that. But oh, that was... uh, well, Enrico Colantoni, who, who sat where you're sitting right now, oh, really? uh, came in and did uh, the show a couple of years back. Oh, cool. And he devised the Thermians. He, he was the one who came up with the physicality in his audition. And we basically... That, 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 yeah. Talk, it, it. And the filmmakers basically so said to every other actor, you do that. Do what he's doing. That's right. the alien. Right. And it's, yeah, it's Rain Wilson and Missy Pyle and okay. Jed Rees, I think, is in there somewhere. And yeah, he, I mean, we, we were talking about, he picked Midnight Run and we were talking about that. And at one point in the recording, you can hear me kind of go, yeah. and he says, <laughs> do you mind if I talk about Galaxy Quest for a second? And I got so excited. Like, oh, oh no, please carry on. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a wonderful vision of, uh, of, the, of, uh, of human alien cooperation. Yeah. They're dumber than we are. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that's, but they were so innocent, and they were so hopeful that they'd have this hero. Yeah, it was very funny. Yeah. And Alan Rickman was hilarious. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it has that, that magnificent... And it, oh, it is. It's um, it's Colin Tony who does it, that magnificent pop culture moment where it all clashes to get, crashes together, and it's like, what about Gilligan's Island? And they just go quiet, those poor people. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. And it was like, Earth Girls are easy, because that uh, Jim Carrey's tongue... Oh, yeah. That's what I remember from that movie. Yeah, the big trailer moment. Yeah. But we don't know how to deal with alien intelligence as narrative, really. It's always, because we're human, we always turn it back on us. It's a, catal- it's a catalyst it's, for human behavior. It's all, it's all, it's it's either, when it's successful, it's funny, like in Galaxy Quest, or it's, um, I did think Arrival came close. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, and, and Close Encounters came close in, in a way, you know. It did, mm-hmm. well, but, but a lot of the time when you when you you know I just was watching um, uh, David Attenborough Blue Planet, you know, yeah. and, and the creatures, or if you look at microscopic diatoms and so forth, they're way more interesting than, than the creatures in our own uh, the creatures of our own planet are usually more interesting and more imaginative than the ones that the uh, the latex and uh, yeah. CGI well, folks now, produce. C- CGI has made anything possible, and we're still using it to create. Yeah, you know, to guys with with rubber like uh, motion capture people. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. But uh, let me just ask you about about um, sure. other films that are kind of one offs. That and I was thinking of the Tree of Life, mm-hmm. a fairly recent film um, by Terence Malick. Malick. Yeah, yeah. And and that was a kind of a love it or hate it thing. I, I loved it. I I did as well. Yeah. I was absolutely about three minutes in. I was interested, and then after another five, it was just like, oh, I get it. We're going, we're just going there. You just have to go he, with it, yeah. But he finally made the movie he's always been making. Yeah. Which was the real discovery, I think, that he could simply tell the story about himself and his youth and the things he thought about. Yeah. And that somehow unlocks the entire universe. And the and the question of whether dinosaurs had mercy and, and yeah. compassion, it's like, well, why wouldn't they? I mean... If, because they're not us, so we yeah. assume they can't. But you know, anybody who's ever had a dog or a cat will tell you that animals are completely capable of inner lives. Yeah, as an advanced animal, but it's it was a bit it was that was a reach, but it mm. I just went but at with that it point too. in the film yeah. you either you just go with it, yeah. yeah. And and 
And you, you, yeah, it, it was, and it had the sort of sense of the divine and grace. It had those, that, that feeling of, mm-hmm. of wonder that, that, in a, you know, that puts it in a way in the same kind of category of brave yeah. films that actually try to get at the wonder of the universe. Yeah. And the, as opposed to being, you know, tr- plot driven and cynical and yeah, explosion based. Explosion based is a good phrase. Yeah. yeah. But the, do you know, you must know, of course, uh, a movie that I admire that is listed as one of the worst movies of all time, <laughs> which is uh, Zabriskie Point. Sure, yeah. The uh, that, the, yeah, that's a film that, when I was a kid, being an immigrant, um, it was the first film that looked like, felt like North America felt to me. Oh, really? The world that yeah. I'd been, this alien world I'd been dropped into where everything was different from England. It, it Superficially the same, but fundamentally different, mm-hmm. felt different. So Brisky Point seemed to capture that, I guess because he was an Italian, uh, that, that sense of, of a world that was entirely, entirely alien. Mm-hmm. And, uh, kind of hypersaturated what, 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 and hmm? hypersaturated, overwhelming, and, yeah. and rich is the wrong word, but... but and nasty. Extra? Yeah, everything it, is... It was very... Uh, yeah. The Lord of Los Angeles was horrific. To me, in that movie. Mm. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a silly movie in some ways, but everything blowing yeah. up at the end. The stylization kind of pushes too far towards the end, I think. But but it has that. It's, it's a, just. It is like two thousand one. It has all this. You know, just wow. That's the ending of this film. Everything's going to blow up. Yeah. Uh, did did you? What do you think of it? It's been forever since I've seen it. I, just, I remember just thinking it's like, yeah, that's what happens when Antonioni tries to make a statement about okay. America. But I don't okay. have the same relationship to the material. Yeah. Um, and I saw it much later. Yeah. I was. I must have seen it in the 90s whenever the first widescreen version came out yeah so I was already in my late 20s when I yeah. saw it and it was you know it was already a, an artifact yeah absolutely and it would seem all that revolutionary violence and justification for violence is, is you know I'm against it you know, mm-hmm. I don't agree with it yeah it feels like a, a weird like an answer song to Godard's Weekend in a weird way yeah just like you yeah, know what, I'll, so. I'll show you the sick soul of Western culture. Yeah, this is this is it. No, this is it. Well, I got one, and yeah, and so forth down the road. But yeah, I, I definitely I can see the the two thousand one connection in the general existentialism at the end, and just the sense of well, I can't answer everything, so I'm just going to end it all. Two thousand and one has an answer, but we aren't allowed to see it. Yeah. It's not a shrug. And it gets this big triumphant finale. Now, in, in Arthur Clarke's book, I think he... he, he ex- the, mm. those, those satellites going around the Earth were originally Det- supposed to be platforms. nuclear yeah. platforms. He which detonates them all. And, which yeah. I never understood that they were meant to be nuclear bombs until... And they don't detonate in the movie because yeah. Skurik thought, wait a minute, I just ended the movie with nuclear bombs going off and I don't want to do that again. Yeah. But it's actually better if it's a completely unreadable ending. If we don't know what that thing is going to do or what it wants or even what it is I still find it I know it's a model I know it's a little dummy head but every time <laughs> it turns to look at the camera it just they, they tr- full they tried, body chills oh really yeah. they, they, they tried to get a, a fetus I know <laughs> this <laughs> is a this real is... fetus but they but they also apparently I can't it's heated up or something on set and and uh, fluid started to come out of the uh. dummy's eyes it was crying and there was a Catholic stagehand Roman Catholic stagehand mm-hmm. who screamed and ran out of the room. <laughs> he thought he was witnessing a miracle. Mm-hmm. But it, it's you know people who get 
everyone who worked on the film and Kubrick was obviously a in many ways, you know, an autocrat and was very stingy with credits and money and mm. he was, had a difficult relationship with Arthur Clarke and but everybody who 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 talks about it all and even at the time I think they knew that it was really something special and were really giving it giving it everything. I'm sure Trumbull must have said he yeah because he he got into a dispute with Kubrick about about the credits but oh special photographic effects was it the, yeah because he, 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 he Kubrick said special effects directed by Stanley Kubrick devised and directed yeah. and yeah but you know sure yeah I don't know I I don't know what I think we'll never like everything with Kubrick right there's a there's a million different interpretations and there are different stories about everything and yeah he probably. Um, made sure that his imprint was prom- was more prominent in the marketing and the release and everything else. Mm. And then by refusing to do interviews after the fact, it's just brilliant. You know, he, mm. he becomes the the vacuum that draws all the mm. attention. Um, the slab. But I think exactly right that he is the monolith. Mm. There is no way around it. Mm. It would not exist without him. Like this film wouldn't be. Yeah. It would never. First of all, it would never have been made. But also, it would simply not be this without his perspective and the fact that you can look at all of his movies from you know well from this onwards that's where he adopted he settled into the Steadicam thing and really understood what he what it was he wanted to do mm. with the dollies and the and the the omniscience mm. Clockwork Orange follows Barry Lyndon follows they they all come from here this was the the pivot point in his in his cinema yeah you know Lolita and, and Dr. Strangelove are very much his movies but his style is still looser, rougher. Yeah. Um, just less formed. Yeah. Yeah. And he never he, worked in scope again, which is something that I always found fascinating. Really? Yeah. Subsequently, all of his films were, were 178, 185, depending on whether you believe Leon Vitale or not. Well, isn't Barry Lyndon really wide, super wide? No. Can't no, remember. it's 166, apparently. Okay. If you believe Leon Vitale, who was arguing for that when the right. restoration came out. But I I do find those films um, less compelling, um, and Barry Lyndon is incredible. I always thought it was like it was like looking down. You know how when you look at the wrong end of a telescope, mm-hmm. and you get these sort of miniature pictures. Even yeah. though it's big, it felt like I was looking down one of those into the 18th century. It, it felt I suppose like looking into space. I felt like I was really looking into space with 2001. With Barry Lyndon, I really felt I was looking at the 18th century more than any other movie I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, and it's the tableau effect. They're just well, it, it, it was just oh, so, so perfectly. And of course, you know the super fast lenses they built with the candle lighting. Candle God, lighting. the gaffers must have gone nuts, you know, lighting the candles and everything. But but it, it uh, at the same time, it's an oddly it's uh, it's an oddly distancing film. I, I don't hmm. uh, it's except for the final duel, which is riveting in the way that. Bowman trying to get into the ship is riveting. It's mm. stunning, but but yeah. Otherwise, it's a very poised film. Yeah, and um, I always thought that was intentional to make it all look like paintings. Everybody's being very still, but but, but how do you engage emotion? Exactly, with it that? creates stasis. You can't yeah. help but do it. What, what's it, what's it? A Ryan O'Neill, mm-hmm. and you know, not well. He's fine, I suppose. Yeah, he's I mean, for what that is. Everybody's giving exactly the performance that Kubrick yes. demands, which is kind of the problem. Yeah. His vision of it is so static. And I felt the same way about Eyes Wide Shut. For yeah. all the forward motion, it's just 
it's cold. It's I mean, that's the cold one of his. It's also silly, this conspiracy stuff. It's yeah. kind of silly. Like, why would he think that? I think it was Eber who said it was the work of a man who hadn't left his house in 20 years, which I think is a really nice right. way to put it. It's just right. someone who has been left alone with his thoughts for way too long. Right. I bet they just sit around and have naked woman parties. That's what it is. And then Yes. And yes. <laughs> and right. Yeah. That's yeah. what they do. That's, I'm sure. I wish I was there. At least dancing. At least I can least convincing New York film I've ever seen. Bohemian Grove sort of nonsense. Yeah. But it's, um, there's also, um, um, what was this? It was Clockwork Orange. There's a Shining, yeah. which I never was in love with. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but uh, yeah, it's fine. I didn't find it that scary and I didn't find it that engaging. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Stephen King famously hated it, and uh, yeah. as an adaptation. And I think, while I think he's wrong about why it isn't a fair adaptation, I think it's an excellent adaptation of of elements of the book. Yeah, but I he's, he said something really brilliant about it, which is that Stanley Kubrick made a horror movie, but he doesn't know what a horror movie is. That it's his it's his impression of a horror film. There was a uh, I think a movie called The Haunting back probably early mid sixties. Oh yeah. Um, I that being Robert terif- Wise. Yeah. yeah, I remember that being far more terrifying. I thought, than, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, there's, a, well, Psycho scarier, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's all those film. Clockwork Orange is powerful. It feels nasty, but it's powerful. Mm-hmm. But uh, and, and I'd love to see Barry Lyndon again, in a proper. Is, does it exist in a good? Criterion put it out last year. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Quite good. So um, I should see it again, but it, but yeah, they didn't um, they didn't have the power for me of uh, of Paths of Glory, of Doctor Strangelove, or two thousand and one, and I think it is because of that he became a guy directing too remotely. Mm. So I mean, in a weird way, this does kind of bring me to the final question of the podcast, which is always you know, is there anything of two thousand and one that you've used? Uh, borrowed, incorporated, stolen mm. into your own creative DNA? Is there is there some expression of it in your work? That's an interesting question, and I should have anticipated it. I remember, <laughs> I remember you asked that. Yeah, of course. Um, I'll, I'll, very obliquely, I would say that yeah, just sure. in preparing for the conversation, I read about it and I've always had this image of Kubrick as this monolith and a kind of terrifying figure as a director. If you're trying to make films, you know, there's this guy who's supremely confident and, and directs. He's, he's absolutely dedicated to his vision. He's unafraid of producers, keeps them away. And, and I feel like, oh, I'm completely the opposite. I'm, I'm, I just want to please everybody. I'm terribly insecure about what I'm doing and, and, and nervous all the time. And then reading about him from his wife and, and other, other testimony, realizing that actually he was very much... Uh, sometimes full of shame and, 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 and oh I'm just screwing up and then and then stays up late at night and then finds a way to yeah maybe this will work but is always doubting it mm. it's like a, you know um, um, Ira Glass of This American Life said, oh, yeah. uh, all stories actively want to suck <laughs> and, and that's true <laughs> that is true everything wants to suck it has a suck force and Kubrick was Obviously, was fighting that as much as uh, as he was presenting this image of he he was he was dealing with his own insecurities and his own difficulties. I remember reading about David Lean having crying jags. I was like, really yeah, amazing. That's something that I've never fully reconciled myself with. Yes, yeah, because the arrogance and the assuredness. So it it it's funny. But so 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 I would say that re- reading about Kubrick. 
has been a takeaway for me in a very positive way, thinking like, oh, okay, even he right. was, was worried about it. And in terms of the actual film, I'm a documentarian, and nothing that I've done has the sort of visual, uh, would have that kind of visual power. But I do think, I would say, once or twice, there's been a cut that's excited me, or I mean, in the cutting room, and thinking, I can do that, and, uh, and this will actually work. And that does derive, in a way, from those... Yeah. Well, the splices the, the jumps. Yeah, that there's that extraordinary cut from the bone to the spaceship, or the cut, the use of sound, and the, and and uh, and I have, I remember thinking, yeah, that could work. That could do a cut like that, and that's those are the ones that come into my mind, or, or, Peter O'Toole blowing out the match in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so in in those oblique ways, I would say, it has. And also just perhaps um, in having in having the courage to try to make a film about something absolutely fundamental, fundamental questions about who we are and where are we going, where we've come from and who we are and where we're going. And to have the courage to look at those fundamental questions, very large questions. So there, I think... It has affected me. I'm, I'm always happy. You know, I'm happy when there's a concrete answer for that question, and also when there is a really roundabout way of, of right. coming to that realization. I mean, the the movies that inspire us don't always inspire us immediately, right? Like they just sort of percolate. And and this film in particular, fifty years on, I can only imagine how many people have taken away something for themselves that is so completely different from the person sitting next to them or the person who was up, who's outside the house and watching it in another room or something like that it, it's just this movie is the thing that I, I can't imagine not having it in the back of your mind somewhere at any creative pursuit if you, yeah. you know if you love it that much yeah absolutely and and the, the sense of, of humanness I mean I, I made a film about um about a searching a personal film searching for uh, my sperm donor and um, who had 500 to a thousand children and those questions of of origin and uh, connectedness to DNA going back to the dawn mm-hmm. of, of humans uh, and who we are uh, really has informed me all my life and, and, and it, it, I would say more the meaning than the technique. I've never built. Uh, oh, actually, actually, there was one we did to recreate sperm going into the vagina with a uh, with a um, a turkey baster kind of thing. Was, okay. Um, we used. We actually did use a technique. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> it's a very minor thing, but putting a lot of light onto a glass jar. Um, shooting milk into 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 water and filming it in slow mo, okay. and then compositing that into a constructed background with uh, with inside the vagina. That that actually we did <laughs> we did uh, think of two thousand and one and how they did those effects very early on because we didn't we didn't have access to uh, that massive CGI. Huh. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. That's true, but it's more the meaning I think. It's, 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 I, I think I think the film inspires inspires a sense of meaning. 
I mean, there are worse goals than searching forever, right? I mean, to continue to explore the, the yeah. nature of everything. Yeah, the big questions. The big questions. I mean, really, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to try to make, make things, then sooner or later you pretty well have to wrestle with that. Yeah. I guess you don't have to. No, I mean, but plenty of people don't. Yeah, yeah. I like the other guys' movies more. Yeah, me too. Me too. My thanks to Barry Stevens, whose documentary Prosecutor is currently available on Amazon Prime. You can also find his TV series War Story streaming on history.ca. You can follow Barry on Twitter at Barry K. Stevens, all one word. And, of course, you can find 2001 A Space Odyssey on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, but you might want to wait for the new 4K edition coming in October. And, of course, the film makes its IMAX 70mm debut this Friday, August 24th, at the Ontario Place Cinesphere in Toronto, the AMC Universal CityWalk in Los Angeles, the AMC Metreon in San Francisco, and the AMC Lincoln Square in New York. If you can, go. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.